Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Since the start of the pandemic, the testing infrastructure in the U.S. has been marred by a bunch of stumbles. Now, as President Biden is putting more emphasis on rapid tests to help fight COVID, these tests are often out of stock and still too expensive for many. Even as new rules say insurers would pay for these tests, it could still be difficult to get reimbursements. For more on all this, we'll speak to Lena Sun, health reporter at the Washington Post. Well, I think what happened is that when the rapid tests first came out, they were a fairly novel idea. And, you know, in the spring, the huge emphasis by the administration was on vaccination. And vaccination, of course, is still the best way to fight the coronavirus, right? You know, if you're vaccinated, you're much less likely to get infected, get sick and die, right? It's much better prevention. Testing has been like the original sin in this pandemic for the United States since the very beginning. Starting last year, they didn't get the test right. They didn't realize people could spread this without symptoms. And then... I think when with the push for the vaccination, there was less of an emphasis on the tests and there was a fall off in demand. And so there was not as much manufacturing going on. And by the time Delta hit and we needed to have more tests, the manufacturing industry had to ramp back up and that took time. And in the meantime, you know, people really want these. They're, they realize they're easier to use. In New Hampshire, at, right after Thanksgiving, residents were able to apply to get free tests delivered to their door. And 800,000 of 1 million tests were gone in less than 24 hours. Of course, they were free and they were you know, delivered right to your door. And I think what you see here is a difference in policy between the United States and some other countries. Jeff Zients, the White House coronavirus sort of coordinator, has been asked again and again, Why doesn't the United States do what other countries do? In in the UK, you know, these rapid tests are free and available. And White House has said that this is something they want to do. It's more efficient and to give people an opportunity to get them. Um, But, you know, also costs a lot more money, right, to buy tests, people to send them to everybody (laughs) in the country. That's on the consumer level. Then on the state level, different states have said that they've ordered these over-the-counter tests. And it's important for states to be able to use them because, let's say, you're a school system and you want to make sure that kids don't have to stay home for quarantine. If you can do test to stay, which is to test them serially, make sure nobody's positive, then kids can stay in class and it doesn't have such of an impact. But of course, you need a lot of tests. Yeah, definitely. And and that, you know, basically, if, some, if a kid had gotten exposed to somebody, they would send them home immediately. Now, with these test to stay programs, they're tested. And as long as they're negative, they can stay in class. So there's less disruptions there. And, you know, to your point about kind of, you know, some of the guidance and some of the missteps, you know, when the vaccines came out, they said, hey, if you're fully vaccinated, you don't need to even test as often. And the ripple effects of that, you know, uh, Abbott laid off a bunch of workers because they saw demand dropping for these tests. So there's a lot that was at play. And as I mentioned, you know, President Biden made the announcement he wants to increase the testing. He wants private insurers to reimburse people when they buy these tests. But a lot of experts say that could even be a non-starter because it requires a person to pay it out of pocket first. Then you got to submit receipts. And it's kind of a big hassle to deal with the insurance companies on that front. Right. They call that pay and chase, right? 
everything we know about health, public health, tells us that the fewer barriers you put up for somebody, the greater the chance that the thing that you're trying to do will get accomplished. So if I had free tests on every corner, then yeah, maybe people would get tested more. But if I have to go to CVS, buy the test, and then keep the receipt, then figure out how to submit to insurance, set aside the time to submit to insurance, call the insurance company if I don't get the stuff right or I don't get my reimbursement, that's just like four more things I have to do. And I think that that, that's going to make it harder. I mean, I think that's something they're trying. This trial program that they started in April called Yes to the COVID Test was distributed in a couple of places around the country, and they made more than about 5.5 million free rapid tests available. And in some places, they were snapped up very quickly. In other places, not as quickly, but I think that probably had to do with the novelty of a rapid test. And then the other point that I wanted to share, maybe people have noticed this, is up until very recently, when you bought one of these test kits, you read the instructions, it tells you, okay, put six drops in here and then open this up and then look for the pink line or whatever. It tells you exactly how to use it, but it doesn't really give you a lot of guidance of when is the best time to use it and what do you do if you get a positive result. And CDC recently updated guidance to give people more guidance to explain the circumstances under which these would be useful. The pandemic fight has always been a multi-pronged effort and testing as you mentioned in the article, right, uh, for the two years, as long as we've been fighting it, has always been, you know, not given the attention that it needed. It was supposed to be the thing to get us out of the pandemic in the first place. Then it came the vaccines and all of this fell to the wayside. So I know there's a lot more money being put into this. I know there's a lot more attention on it now. So we'll see if it plays out and if the U.S. can get their testing standards up with all of this. Lena Sun, yeah. health reporter at the National Desk at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The tiny town of West Hollywood, California, is going all in on cannabis and wants to rebrand as the Emerald Village. The city is planning on approving as many as 40 cannabis permits for dispensaries and high-end lounges. For more on how West Hollywood wants to become a global destination for pop tourism, we'll speak to Hugo Martin, business reporter at the LA Times. If you've been in Southern California, you know, uh, West Hollywood is a very progressive town. Um, you know, back in the Prohibition days, they had a lot of uh, these speakeasy restaurants where you could uh, get booze. And then when the AIDS epidemic hit, they had a lot of uh, uh, marijuana, uh, medical marijuana dispensaries. Um, they're very uh, supportive of LGBTQ community. So it's a very progressive city. So um, they're one of the first cities when California voted to allow recreational marijuana, one of the first cities to start opening dispensaries. Uh, they have six now, which is doesn't seem like a lot, but for a city of 35,000, it's it's quite a bit. Um, and they're planning to approve up to 40 permits in the next year or so. Uh, we're talking about lounges where you could uh, sit around and just, you know, smoke or, or take uh, gummies or, or whatever, um, and uh, dispensaries and, um, you know, delivery uh, businesses, up to 40. Uh, and they also got the support of uh, several celebrities. Um, I was able to report that Jay-Z, the rapper, uh, his, his company recently bought one of the West Hollywood dispensaries, um, 
Patricia Arquette is an investor in one of them, uh, and so is uh, Woody Harrelson and uh, comedian Bill Maher. They're investors in another um, dispensary. So, yeah, the the plan uh, from on the part of the city and, and some of the uh, cannabis uh, business operators is to make it sort of make the city sort of a a, a, a central uh, hotspot for. Uh, cannabis fans where you can go and it's going to be sort of more highbrow, high-end dispensaries um, where you could, you know, buy them. And, and there's even one that's also a, an art, um, an art gallery and right. a dispensary. Yeah. And that's the, an important distinction. They want them to be on the higher end side. You know, they want people to come and spend money as this uh, pot tourism area. So they want people to come and just spend as much money as they can and, you know, the, the mayor of West Hollywood for herself said the, the community is in large support of all of this. And even when in 2018 they were uh, going to license out, I think it was eight uh, licenses to operate retail dispensaries. They had more than 300 applications. So people want to be there, want to be doing business there. Tell me about what some of these would look like. You mentioned kind of lounges and whatnot. Uh, MedMen is one of the big players in West Hollywood. Artistry, that was the one that you were mentioning. It looks like an art gallery. But they want to add additions to their current setups and open air lounges, and so that way people can just kind of hang out and relax. Yeah, for example, I think there's one where it would be a dispensary on the first floor, and then on the second floor it's like an open air patio where you could just hang out, uh, order food, and enjoy, you know, the the cannabis that you that you purchased. Um, yeah, there, there's several of them that are like that, um, and so they're they're very well lit. They're they're well patrolled. Um, the ones that I visited all had a security guard out front, making sure there was no you know people hanging around smoking their stuff on the sidewalk. So the, the city has imposed a lot of restrictions so that this doesn't become a sort of a seedy uh, operation. It's, it's very uh, above board, but yeah, the, the ones that I, I've heard are, are, are being built, um, you know, with the support of uh, these celebrities are going to be very high end um, with, um, you know, a lot of, um, you know, sort of luxurious distinctions. There's going to be, you know, uh, some uh, nice food and some nice, um, you know, settings, uh, you know, chairs and couches and things like that. All in keeping with the the vibe that West Hollywood itself has right now. And the timing seems right for all of this, right? We just, during the pandemic, cannabis was deemed essential. The workers, the dispensary staff were deemed essential workers throughout that. And they brought in a lot of money for West Hollywood itself. They brought in $2.2 million uh, in taxes. And they hope that after they license all these other ones, they can get up to $6 million. So the money is right. There's still some issues with federal law, however, but this is where they're trending to. Yeah, I mean, who, who could have seen that coming uh, during the pandemic? Uh, apparently, we all just sort of uh, started doing a lot of uh, cannabis here in California. Uh, the state, like, more than doubled the number of cannabis uh, businesses uh, since the start of the, the pandemic. So, uh, yeah, it's a trend that's that's really growing and it's generating a lot of it's it's really taxed heavily here in California. And West Hollywood is also taxing it. So, um, you know, the cannabis is not cheap. Uh, and, and most of it is because of its, its taxes that are that are going to the state and, and, the, and the city. Um, but, yeah, that doesn't seem to slow Californians down because, uh, you know, we've been 
buying uh, cannabis, uh, you know, at, at nearly double the rate um, in the past couple of years. Uh, and so West Hollywood is jumping on that trend. Hugo Martin, business reporter at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thanks for having me. Samuel Little, the most prolific serial killer in the U.S., died at the end of last year and had confessed to a slew of murders that have yet to be closed. Many of those murders took place in the Los Angeles area, leaving detectives chasing ghosts as they try to connect the dots and corroborate the killings. There's one final push for any information in these cases as one of the lead investigators is retiring this month. For more on all this, we'll speak to James Queeley, criminal justice reporter at the LA Times. What is triggering this is, as you mentioned, Sam Little died at the very end of last year, and the Texas Ranger who was able to elicit most of those confessions, the, 90, the 93 murders that he's claimed he committed, uh, he's, he's stepping down next month. So there are, you know, some of the original case detective who arrested him in Los Angeles, she is still on the job. But other than that, a lot of the key players in this case are, you know, as we said, either dead or uh, stepping away from police work. So what happened this morning is the FBI, in conjunction with the Texas Rangers, they released summaries of 31 of Little's confessions that have not been able to be corroborated by local law enforcement. And more than half of those are in Los Angeles. Little has claimed credit for about 20 killings in this area, three of which he was convicted of back in 2014, which put him in prison and started this whole situation. You know, the first domino that brought us to where we are now. Uh, Some of them have been found to have taken place in other cities near L.A., And that's the main problem is he's mostly claimed credit for killings between 1987 and 1996. And there have been just seismic shifts in the city. They drove him around uh, South L.A. is where he claimed to have operated mostly. They drove him around the area about two years ago. But so many of the landmarks he might have recognized then are either no longer there. You know, uh, know, if if he said he killed somebody behind a strip mall, that might be an apartment complex now. Uh, He was not from California, although he had. Uh, committed numerous crimes here and killed or assaulted, ser- seriously injured multiple women. Uh, he didn't, you know, I don't think he really knew the difference between L.A., Long Beach, Compton, Inglewood. Uh, you know, there's a lot of areas that, that, that barrier, bar- barrier one another, overlap on one another, and he wouldn't know the difference. So they've had a lot of problems even, you know, searching through, even just for LAPD's sake. You know, they have 6,000 unsolved murders, something like that, in the time period he claimed he operated. And if they're not looking in the right city, there's nothing, there's no case in reality to match to these, these confessions he right. gives where he normally paints a vague picture of a woman or maybe remembers their name or something they were wearing, but that's not going to help you looking for a crime scene, you know, 30 years later. So it's, it's a very it's a big uphill battle in a, in a, in a city this large uh, with this much time elapsed and with the jurisdictional overlap that you have in certain parts. And that's one of the interesting things about uh, the case with Little is that he at times has this extraordinary memory of these women. As you mentioned, he would do drawings. He'd have uh, specific details about like, you know, something behind a tree and buried here and buried there and and all that. And so he'd have very specific uh, things to point to. But as you mentioned, the landscape of the city changed all sorts of things. It, It makes it hard to really link those things together. Right. And on top of everything else, uh, his M.O. was largely to he, he had a type of victim he attacked. They were normally prostitutes, normally black women. And unfortunately, that matched the M.O. of other serial predators operating in L.A. at the same time. Um, the, the grim sleeper, Lonnie Franklin Jr., uh, behaved in a similar manner, although he obviously didn't kill by strangulation. 
But other than that, you know, he, he was targeting similar women. There were other people, you know, Ellie, we all know LA's infamous history with serial killers. There were other, other people operating at the same time. Um, there also, he, well, he was arrested through DNA. Uh, DNA is not the magic bullet in this case that it normally is in a lot of others, uh, because he was, Little was a bit of a bizarre case in that he killed for sexual gratification, but he normally did not actually sexually assault his victims. So he did not often leave the kind of DNA at a scene that has led to captures of other, you know, infamous serial predators in the state and around the nation. So yeah, a lot, a lot of the, the 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 ways you see some of these other marquee serial predator cases go go down these days don't really apply. Yeah. To Little's case. Another thing uh, that uh, we point to is missing case files and evidence are another problem. That's why, you know, that's why they're putting these calls out there to see if it jogs anybody's memories, obviously, in other jurisdictions, other cities. There was one, I guess, a sheriff who said that they think they possibly identified somebody in Roland Heights in another city, but they just can't link the evidence there. There's not enough forensic evidence there to be able to link them. And that's one of the other ongoing problems. Yeah, there was one like that. He's mentioned Compton in more than one confession, and I believe at the time he was operating, most of the time he was operating anyway, Compton had its own police department. The, the L.A. Sheriff's Department now has a contract to handle all law enforcement activity in the city of Compton, but at the time that wasn't the case. Um, and you've also got the situation where it's not, um, every strangulation does not necessarily come across as a homicide, so there may be some of the women he killed, you know, given the situation described, given they may have been drug addicts there, you know, and this, this is a little bit um, speculating by the detectives more than backed up in fact, but the possibility exists that some of the, the women who he's, whose killings he's confessing to are not in a homicide file. So then the, 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 these departments are left to look through overdose cases, which are by any, any, any given year number in the thousands and thousands. It just becomes a, a needle in a very, very right. sad and blood-soaked haystack. Yeah, uh, we're talking about a L.A. county, but there's also Miami, Atlanta, New Orleans, Las Vegas, Cincinnati, other places where there are cold cases that they're looking to close, possibly. If anybody, I mean, has any information, wants to look up more, what, what can people do? Uh, the FBI has put out a tip line. They're asking anyone with any information or anything that their memories draws from these 31 cases to call, you know, 1-800-CALL-FBI. Uh, if you're in the L.A. area, the main agencies that have, in, that I believe are still looking for unsolved cases are the LAPD, the Sheriff's Department, or Inglewood Police. You probably want to call one of them. Uh, I believe the FBI has also released these these case summaries to a website, and we have most of them linked out from our main story on our website. So, right there are, and there are many jurisdictions beyond LA that have cases. There's just it's only one or two in most of these other places. But yeah, Little was very active in the Southeast. There are cases out of Ohio. So, yeah, if you're a listener not in California, there is still maybe a chance that there is something, you know, possibly within your purview. So it's, it's if, if this is something, yeah, any of your listeners are interested in trying to help out with, uh, that would just, it'd be worth it to take a, take a scan of the, the confession summaries. James Queeley, criminal justice reporter at the L.A. Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.